Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is the one and only Justin Brierly, the former host of the wildly popular Unbelievable podcast. He is currently a freelance writer, speaker, and broadcaster known for creating creative dialogues between Christians and non-Christians. He's written a couple books. His first book is titled Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian which is published in 2017. His forthcoming book, his second book, is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, which will come out uh, early September. Would highly encourage you to check that out. And we had a wonderful conversation about um, his recent book. And uh, really, we wrestled with the question of why the new atheism movement is kind of dying out and why there's a surprising rise in secular thinkers considering Christianity. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Justin Brown. Justin, thanks for being, uh, uh, I think this is your second time on Theology in the Raw, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but when was the first time? I, I can hardly even remember. Was it when you were over in the UK and recording some episodes way back? Well, I was on your show then. Um, I've been on your show a couple times. I, I think yeah. you were maybe on during the COVID era. I think maybe, maybe you haven't been. I'm pretty sure you've been <laughs> on, but maybe not. <laughs> it, well, it, I, it's such a joy to have a, a, wow. a host on this show, somebody who totally gets being on this side of the, the, the screen you know so uh you, you are uh, well, a master well, at this so i, I we, we all look up to you oh, well that that's very kind person but i think you do an amazing job I, I love listening to the podcast i think you've got super interesting guests and such a great discussion going so yeah very pleased to whether or not it's my first or second or whatever time i'm, I'm very pleased to be here yeah i, I think that so i mainly have dialogues with other Christians. Uh, oftentimes there's a lot of agreement. Sometimes there's disagreement. You t- often have, or are hosting dialogues and have dialogues with people who are outside the faith that that's, you know, and I don't have nearly as many as that, but I would say your, your tone, your posture, your curiosity is very much. I mean, when I listen to you, I, I glean a lot from how you, you have these conversations. So I, I do think there's, there's such a resonance in, in how we approach this. Um, I, I want to jump in with, um, your forthcoming book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, the subtitle is Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. That is a brilliant subtitle. I would love for you to answer that question if you don't <laughs> mind. Like, because I've thought about that. Like, you just thought the new atheist movement, and maybe you need to explain what that even is for people yeah, who might not. Yeah. But well, I, I've been I, like, well, how come this didn't take off? Like, what's going on? I, so, yeah. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of the long subtitle on a book. Uh, my last okay. book had a long subtitle as well, but it does really, you know, to some extent, encapsulate what the book is all about. Um, we start with the new atheism, which, for those who don't know, was a sort of very dogmatic form of atheism that arose in the mid 2000s, led by. People like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, they were publishing best-selling books, basically saying there's no God and religion is bad for you. 
Uh, they were having atheist conferences. They were there were rallies. There was a real kind of burgeoning internet community around the whole thing, and there were a lot of headlines. and uh, And the stock in trade of the new atheism was was not just sort of intellectual arguments against God, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, pr uh, sort of science and reason and all that. It was also a certain amount of ridicule as well. They were happy to kind of, you know, weigh in, in, on, in that kind of way. There were lots of memes that kind of circulated and so on. So, so it was this very specific, quite, quite anti-theistic version of, of atheism. Um, a lot of people would suggest that it was 9-11 that was partly responsible for it, you know, that the mm. reaction to kind of religious extremism and terrorism kind of set that in motion. So, it, you know, it wasn't just Christianity that they were opposing. It was Islam as well, of, of course. Um, but I think there was also cultural issues like um, the question of intelligent design being taught in schools. That, that was kind of on, on the agenda. And there was a lot of pushback from uh, people like Dawkins and others against that and coming, coming out swinging for Darwin and so on. Um, and I think just the fact that, yeah, it was um, a time when the blogosphere was getting uh, underway, early forms of social media. It gave lots of different atheists, perhaps, who felt somehow a little bit like religion was, there was too much religion around um, to, to be able to get together in those online spaces and really kind of create a movement in that way. I, I mean, here in the UK, probably, you know, the high point of it was, was what was become known as the atheist bus campaign. Um, and this was the closest thing to a marketing um, campaign that they had because for a while there were red London buses um, circulating the city with the words, there's probably no God, now stop really? worrying and enjoy your life. Um, <laughs> and that was sponsored by the Humanist Association, Richard Dawkins was behind it and so on. So so it was, it was you know, the closest thing to have kind of really organized sort of atheist movement uh, of its time. It, the, the equivalent sort of high point I would say in the US was the Reason Rally, I don't know if you remember that back mm. in 2012, when tens of thousands of atheists and skeptics gathered on the mall in Washington, D.C. to sort of campaign for science and reason and against the forces of superstition. So so it really did feel like a, a movement that had a lot of energy behind it at the time. So, yeah, wh where is it now? Um, the reality is I think it really has fizzled out in, in many mm. ways. None of those key architects of the movement are really talking about religion much any longer. Mm. Um, I think it lost steam partly because I don't think it ultimately satisfied the actual questions people ultimately have. There's a reason why a new set of secular thinkers have come to kind of replace really that that new atheist thing and are drawing essentially the same kind of crowd to themselves. And I, I think th there's a point at which you can, you know, champion science and reason, but it, it's not going to buy you meaning and purpose and value. Mm. And I think there was just a kind of a limit to how much atheism could offer people you know it's, it's essentially it's a negative claim anyway and they had a, a real trouble building a kind of positive movement out of it because once they'd agreed that god didn't exist and religion was bad for you it turned out that the atheist leading the movement could hardly agree on anything else um in fact the movement kind of splintered in all kinds of different directions it started unraveling because a lot of people fell out with each other there were lots of controversies i could i could go into the detail oh, but basically really? yeah. it ended up with a lot of the key atheist names not being willing to share a stage with each other because of these the infighting and the factions and so on um and and to some extent it was basically the beginning of the culture wars that spelled the end of new atheism because um basically it split down the middle on issues around sort of are we atheists who are also championing lgbt rights and feminism mm. and, 
uh, and you know are we you know concerned about privilege and patriarchy and you had that wing that kind of came to be termed atheism plus because it was plus all these things and then on the other side you had those who were the kind of you know old school free thought folk who said we don't need all this politically correct additional stuff to our atheism we just want science and reason and the ability to just say what we think um without having to watch our p's and q's so um it, it but that really did sort of split the atheist movement uh, in two and there it, in a way the kind of venom that those leaders had for each other kind of outweighed anything that they had had for their oh, christian wow. counterparts before so so there's a, there were a lot of factors that went into why it came and went um there was this internal thing but there was also this overall cultural thing that it just it just felt like it ran out of steam in the end. You mentioned Richard Dawkins. I mean, that's probably the name most people would recognize if they recognize any of them. I mean, his books, this isn't just an academic who had some influence. I mean, he, he million, sold millions of books, right? I mean, mm. oh, widely yeah. popular in the heyday. So for it to fizzle yeah. out, now that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is, speak, speaking of the, you know, the sort of ways in which the controversies overtook the new atheists. I mean, Richard Dawkins was at the center of a lot of those because it seemed for a while, every time he posted anything on Twitter, it would create an avalanche of kind of response <laughs> because he wasn't, he didn't seem to be afraid of, of posting quite controversial things quite often. Um, to the extent that, you know, more recently, and this is an area you, you've covered a lot, obviously, Preston, but he was stripped of his Humanist of the Year award by the American Humanist Association because of his comments on transgender. Um, and so that's just one example of the way in which the, the atheist movement kind of <laughs> developed into all this infighting because of essentially these culture war issues that, that were on the horizon. To say I d I've dabbled in it would even be generous. Like I, I've not read, any, you know, but listen to interviews and, and I've I probably listened to more like Richard Dawkins being interviewed and, and Sam Harris's podcast and seeing him in, in other spaces. In my opinion, I would love to. I mean, let me know if I'm totally out to lunch. I, I'm shocked at how unintelligent Richard Dawkins sounds like it, when his ver his understanding of Christianity sounds like he went to some like podunk backwoods church in like the middle of Kansas <laughs> somewhere, listen to some preacher. And that's the extent of his like knowledge of Christianity. Doesn't seem to be aware that there's like thoughtful Christians out there is incapable of steel manning any kind of Christian argument straw manning i mean like crazy and i say that as like when i listen to sam harris i'm like oh no okay here's a thoughtful guy this guy's very thoughtful i actually love i mean sam harris has he i, I really enjoy listening to him i mean obviously mm. we have major mm. disagreements i believe in jesus mm. he doesn't but mm. but i mean he's yeah, yeah. like okay here's a thoughtful guy he's clearly brilliant yeah. when i listen to richard dawkins i remember listening to him i think on the joe rogan podcast a while back and i'm like are you are you serious? Like, this is your understanding of the body. Like you have no aware, <laughs> oh, no awareness of like, yeah, we've wrestled with like the Canaanite genocide or something. We, 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 there's actual books written on it. <laughs> Google it. I don't know. Like it just seems yeah. shockingly unintelligent. Am, am, I, am I, have I take, if I, if I seen the worst of Richard Dawkins or is that kind of characteristic of? Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would broadly agree. I, I think he, he I, I think he almost sees things like the Bible and theology as almost barely worth kind of in, okay. putting much time into understanding because he he sees them as so almost pointless in, in and of themselves. And so he, he, you know, he, in his God delusion, you know, he, he dealt with like classic philosophical arguments like the ontological argument in like two pages and claimed to have sort of dismissed it out of hand you know well let's let's be honest that's probably not going to be the best sort of refutation right. you've ever read of of that argument 
So it, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's frustrating because inevitably, of course, uh, it didn't stop millions of people buying the books and turning up at his lectures and everything else. And and many thinking Christians and even thinking atheists, actually, were rather frustrated that Dawkins just wasn't really taking the argument seriously. I mean, one, one of the interesting things about all of it, you know, was that, again, going back to the sort of the heyday of it, when when Christians were really wanting to kind of get Dawkins to engage with some of the strongest arguments for Christianity and for God and to not just be this guy who who just responds to, you know, the Colorado hell house and, you know, yeah. some fundamentalist preacher in the backwoods or whatever. The problem was he he didn't seem willing to do that. So so it was almost like he preferred the easy targets and the straw men. Yeah, and he wasn't yeah. willing to come on and debate, for instance, William Lane Craig, who, you know, is a well-known Christian philosopher and I was involved in a sort of campaign while Bill Craig was over in the UK back in 2011, trying to get Richard Dawkins to come and have a discussion with, you know, yeah. uh, with him in Oxford on his home turf. Um, we even rather cheekily created our own bus campaign, which was called There's Probably No Dawkins Now, uh, but find <laughs> out by coming along uh, to the Sheldonian Theatre. So, so it was sort of, yeah, the problem was he was happy to dish it out, but he wasn't so willing to take it. And, and I think that's that again was part of the reason why people stopped being able to take it so seriously. It didn't feel like ultimately it, it had the kind of intellectual credibility that its proponents claimed that it had. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. Okay. So let's the second part of your question here, subtitle, uh, why are secular thinkers considering Christianity again? And I shared it with you offline, just kind of my interest in this part of the question. I, I remember um, when Jordan Peterson was really taking off, and I feel like there's two Jordan. I, I, I really, I do want to talk to you about him because I know he's a he's kind of a controversial figure. I, I, I liked, I appreciated him more early on, um, not not nearly as much more recently. But we can get it. Not that that matters at all. But mm. I remember mm. when he really gained popularity. Here's a guy who has no re- religious commitment. You know, is he curious? Is he a Christian? You know, people kind of where's he at? You know, but he's He's giving like three hour long lectures, very intellectual lectures on like the flood or the Cain and Abel story. And thousands of people are showing up to hear an in-depth intellectual lecture on a story in the Bible and they're paying for it. Yeah. Many of them aren't even Christians. And then I turn around and like Christian pastors have a hard time getting people to come who are committed Christians who are actually think this is a divinely inspired story to come to church. It's like, how do we get people to come to church? You know? And I'm like, what's going aside from Jordan and all this, just this, this, Mm. it's a fascinating cultural Mm. moment that we're in. Like, I'm like, what is going on here? And as an academic, I'm always pushing for, I think people are smarter than we're making them out to be. I don't think we need to dumb down. I think people are want more me. I think they want to be challenged. I think, but we need to like, do it, not like yeah, dim it down, water it down or try to get people, yeah. you know, like, so that, that's my kind of like, I, 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 that's the argument I want to be true. Like, Hey, see, yeah. see people yeah, are yeah. actually wanting to engage yeah, the text yeah. on an in-depth level, but, but maybe that's just my assumption. Anyway, all that to say, yeah, going back to the original question. Um, why are secular thinkers considering Christianity again? And, and w- can you make sense of this kind of yeah. Jordan Peterson 
moment that I think is tied to that question. Yeah, I mean, Jordan Peterson is probably the the most prominent of of the figures that I mentioned, and and you're you're right, he's had different phases in his life, and um, there, you know, I, I I kind of I love some of what he writes and speaks about. Other stuff I could leave behind because I, I think, you know, he, he's kind of to some extent he goes overboard when he's going in kind of culture warrior mode on Twitter and that kind of thing. But um, but no, I mean, I, I first ran into Jordan Peterson, I think back in 2017, when he was a bit of a cult figure in Canada and he was filling these auditoriums already with these young men primarily um, doing these long lectures on Genesis. And you think, yeah, what, my goodness, what, what's he got that, you know, the preacher down the road obviously doesn't have. Um, and then, of course, he he kind of really came into public popularity in 2018. There was this kind of viral. It was while, while he was in the UK, actually. He he was interviewed on Channel Four News by a female presenter debating the gender pay gap, and right, his yeah. kind of very cool dismantling of her kind of went viral um, all over the world. And and that really launched him into the stratosphere. But what was interesting was that that you know, as much as he was kind of talking on those kind of hot button culture issues he he was also had this very deep side to him where he was really engaging with the issue of god and the bible i mean if you read his best selling book 12 rules for life it's stuffed full of references from the bible and the the wisdom that he dispenses in these lectures you know they're constant you know uh, constantly taken from ancient wisdom of the scriptures and so on and and why why him why was the, you know why why was this so popular a lot of the audience i think were kind of the same audience that had been turning out for the new atheists. They, these were kind of thinking, mm. intelligent people looking for answers. And I think what happened was, I, I just think they, the, because of that new atheist thing was running out of steam and it, it wasn't really satisfying a deeper sense of people's longings and intuitions for meaning, for purpose. And because I think we we were moving more and more and have ever since into a kind of very, very super post-Christian your, you can have any story you want kind of identity is completely up for grabs kind of world. Um, I think what you had, the people who were turning up were a lot of, as I say, especially young men looking for, for, for identity. Um, it, it was a kind of a meaning crisis and an identity crisis. And Jordan Peterson, he kind of presented and still presents this kind of wise father figure uh, mm. who was kind of, you know, telling them to clean their room and stand up straight with their shoulders back and quite simple kind of homely wisdom, but kind of delivered also with this kind of this sort of deeper sense Mm. of meaning and how to make sense of your life and looking at yourself in the big picture of kind of reality. And, and sort of, I think it just, it just spoke to, to a lot of people who felt like they were, they'd had kind of shallow answers, both from popular culture and from the new atheism Mm. And they felt like there was something meaty here. There was something that that kind of spoke to to their their inner sense of who they were and what life could be about. And and it, I think it almost made a difference that he was a very human character. He still is a very human character, Jordan yeah, yeah, Peterson. Yeah. Um, he wasn't too. He's not too studied in the way he brings himself across. He he wears his heart on his sleeve. He he, he you know on stage and in interviews he he frequently wells up. You know and he's closer yeah. to tears. It's like he's. He kind of wears his emotions on his sleeve. He, and you get the sense that this stuff really matters to him. It's not just an academic argument. It's not just a sort of you know a chance to sell books or whatever. He he's genuinely concerned for the state of people's souls, essentially. And and so I think all of that kind of just yeah, it just there was this aura and this attraction 
for a lot of people who were looking for someone who could kind of give them a sense of meaning and purpose and identity. Now, I'm not saying he had all the answers by any stretch, but I do think he he managed to somehow at that moment sort of be something that that people felt a person mm. they could follow, someone who had something to say that they, they felt might mm. be worth listening to. This is an imperfect analogy, but kind of like a sec, more sec or less re, less religious, less Christian, no, less religious, like Mark Driscoll or something, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, How did I, he I mean, gain this folly? It's like, well, he, I think he, a lot of people had daddy issues. They yeah. needed to be told to man up may, maybe in a way that wasn't. Yeah. But I, he scratched I think, a niche. I think, he scratched I, a niche. I think the, there, there is actually interestingly a lot of overlap, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, yeah. but, um, it, I think yeah they're different in their different ways, but actually yeah to some extent there there are there are real different there are real similarities in terms of what was attracting, especially these young men who wanted to kind of have that sense of purpose and identity and sort of yeah responsibility as well in life. What was it like you? So you interviewed Jordan, right? You had one on one mm. like conversation. What mm. was he like as a person? I mean, I I agree that when I hear him in interviews, he very human. I know he has this kind of like crusty kind of strength to him that. Some people are really turned off, but I've heard him in interviews get really like, I'm like, oh, he cares deeply, deeply for yeah, people, yeah. you know, and, and very, very empathetic in ways that I think some people who don't like him wouldn't give him credit for. But what was it like talking? Yeah. What kind of person was he? Yeah, I, I mean, I managed to catch him sort of just before he went sort of super, super stellar, really, in terms of his uh, his, his being well known uh, on big stages. So it was just before he had that viral interview with Kathy Newman on on Channel Four that I recorded oh, wow. a big a big conversation episode with him opposite an atheist psychologist, um, Susan Blackmore, and I I, w I was very aware that he didn't sort of claim a Christian faith for himself, but I'd set this up as a, a discussion on do we need God to make sense of life basically, and and he you know really acted the part of a Christian apologist. You know you would have been hard to distinguish the things he was saying from what a lot of Christian apologists might say about why, you know, I mean, when he calls on Genesis, you know, as a foundation for human dignity and rights, mm -hmm. you know, that we're made in God's image, he says, you know, you just can't get that from a materialist ethic. You have to have something like the Christian story. It, it sounds, you know, as though he, he's essentially just championing Christianity. And so he, he, it's fascinating then because when you actually ask him, well, do you believe in God? He was kind of like, well, it depends what you mean by God. And I think um, I, I I act as though I believe in God, but who can really know their inner motivations and psychology and that kind of thing? So he was he didn't want to be like pinned down on that kind of stuff, um, but he was very happy to kind of make a kind of intellectual case for the for the moral force of Christianity and the the value of of Christianity. And and that's what I've seen actually with a lot of these other secular thinkers. They're sort of some of them are closer and some of them are further away from actual personal faith. <laughs> By and large, they they all agree that Christianity is a is a is has overall been a good thing in the West, and that the new atheists really overplayed their card when it came to the evils of religion. Um, I think by and large they see that you, that was just not the case. That that actually Christianity has given us far more than the the new atheists ever ever really accounted for. Who who are some other the th thinkers then? I know you talked to uh, Tom Holland and, and several others. Like who who else are you thinking of in terms of secular thinkers well, who are considering Christianity? Yeah, Tom Holland is a good example, and I always have to make the caveat not not the <laughs> Spider Man uh, <laughs> superhero Tom Holland. Uh, this is a, a Tom Holland who's a well known um, author of historical literature here in the UK. He 
co-hosts a huge history podcast called The Rest is History that's listened to around the world. I think it is the number one history podcast in the world. And um, and he's got the, a fascinating story because he really, whatever childhood faith he had in the Anglican church kind of had fizzled out by his teenage years. And he, he kind of grew up essentially as sort of secular agnostic, assuming that, you know, civilized culture was just what came from the enlightenment and reason and science and that kind of thing. It was only when he started a career writing uh, books, investigating the world of the Greeks and the Romans, that he he suddenly began to encounter just how alien those cultures were to his way of thinking, the way they treated um, women and children, uh, slavery, sex. Um, he realized that, that in almost every way, the values and ideals that he held as a modern Westerner were not shared with the Greeks and the Romans, and indeed weren't shared with many other parts of the world in the in the contemporary world, and that they he he couldn't avoid the conclusion that those values came from the Christian Revolution, as he calls it. Um, it, it in, and he wrote basically on on the back of this sort of journey that he went on this this huge book called Dominion, which really spells out the vast multiplicity of ways in which the Christian Revolution shaped all of our ideas about freedom and democracy, science, um, human dignity, compassion. Uh, and, and it was, yeah, it, it was extraordinary um, to see the way that his journey developed. I've, I've had the privilege of having in, in a number of conversations, both very congenial ones with people like N.T. Wright, where they've both shared a passion for history and the early church and the influence of, you know, Jesus and St. Paul, and also some real combative debates, like one with A.C. Grayling uh, a little while ago that, that yeah, was a, was a real fun kind of debate to, to see him in. Did you also talk to um, uh, Doug, Douglas Murray? I think he's- That's right. What, yeah. So what's he? Yeah. He's an interesting figure too. He is. He is. And for those who don't know him, he's a sort of English journalist, deputy editor of a magazine called The Spectator here. Um, he kind of, as with a number of these figures, actually, he kind of leans right when it comes to his politics. Um, but he's a very interesting character because he's an atheist, he's gay. In a sense, he was very much a product to some extent. We're about the same age. And he was he was very influenced, I think, by the new atheist. He was good friends with Christopher Hitchens, frequently went for lunch with him and, you know, lived in that milieu, if you like. But when he came on my show about two years ago to have a conversation with N.T. Wright, he he really described to me the way in which he he kind of really got past that new atheist phase actually himself, and he says he really came to see that the new atheism really didn't have an answer to the issue of ethics to the issue of how we build a culture. Mm. He said that there is no at, at present he can't see any better foundation than the Christian foundation for human rights, dignity, equality, a very kind of similar kind of view to Tom Holland in that sense. Um, and he even wears the epithet of being a Christian atheist. You know, he he likes to put those two together. And what was interesting is is I, I kind of owe the, the, the title and the image on the front of my book to, to Douglas Murray to some extent, because it was in that conversation that he talked about the fact that he was starting to see some of his friends converting to Christianity, particularly to you know, more ancient forms, you know, Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. And he said it wasn't a flood of them, but it was it was noticeable. And it made him wonder whether maybe the tide is turning. Maybe there's, you know, the church is able to speak into a more receptive crowd, as he, he put it. And he referenced that well-worn line from Matthew Arnold, the Victorian poet, uh, where it talks about the melancholy, long withdrawing roar of the sea of faith, this, this vision of 
faith going out in the Victorian era as science and reason and the enlightenment sort of swept superstition away. But he said, the thing about the sea of faith is that it could come back in again. That's the point of tides. Hmm. And I just thought it was really interesting because hmm. I was noticing, as I say, this phenomenon of people like Douglas Murray kind of taking Christianity much more seriously again than, than the, the atheist counterparts had. And also seeing some interesting conversion stories, just as he was seeing. And I just wondered, well, maybe maybe this is the telltale signs that despite all the statistics about, you know, the growth of the nuns and the increasing secularization of the West, maybe we're just starting to get to the furthest ebb, if you like, of that tide of secular materialism. And, and we may yet see the sea of faith come back in again, perhaps even in our generation, you know. What, what would be the common denominator? I mean, so we talked about Peterson. Tom Holland, Murray, who had some kind of, some kind of awakening. Like none of them would say, well, "I'm an atheist. God doesn't exist." Or even you know, there, there's some kind of theism that, that that they're embracing on some level. Would that be accurate? Mm. How would you? How would you? I think they're probably all at different stages at a personal level. I, I think, um, I think probably if they wore a label, they they would prefer something like agnostic over over okay. hard atheist a lot of these, these folk they're they're kind of really attracted to the christian story um I'd, I'd say that's especially true of tom holland um whenever i've spoken to him about his own sort of at a personal level i think he he is very drawn to to christianity because you know the way he's put it to me is he finds the kind of secular material story of reality just just very boring anemic pallid it, it doesn't excite him whereas he loves the story of Christianity, he just finds it exciting. And, you know, he, he, he loves the drama and that the idea of the kind of uh, this being a cosmic drama, you know, and, and I think at that level, it's, you know, it's when he's connected with the, the ancient form of it, you know, he, and when he does go to church, uh, he does go to a very ancient church, probably the oldest mm -hmm. church in London. And he loves the, you know, the, that, that kind of liturgical approach, uh, and everything else, I think because he feels, you know, as a historian connected to a bigger story. And I think that's what he really appreciates about the Christian tradition. So I think there's a real, a real sense that, you know, he wants to, to find, yeah, he would like, love it to be true, basically. Um, I, th I think that could even be true of Douglas Murray, though. I don't know that you never know what barriers are potentially standing in the way of some people. I mean, Jordan Peterson's an interesting one. And people have, you know, spilled a lot of ink over where he's at. But I do remember one one particular conversation he had really stuck with me. It was shortly after he was sort of coming out of a period of quite a, lot, a long period of illness that he'd had. And he he struck up a real friendship with a Eastern Orthodox icon carver called Jonathan Pajot. Yeah. And they've had a number of conversations. And in this one, I remember them talking about faith and religion. And Jordan Peterson, again, getting very emotional when talking about the person of Jesus and and talking about how it seemed to him that the person of Christ reconciled the, the world of psychology and meaning and myth, which he was so invested in with the kind of real physical world of, you know, objective facts. Uh, it was, uh, he talked, Christ seemed to be this, this moment of being able to bring these things together, which is quite a sort of CS Lewis like kind of way of looking at, at things. So I, I, I'm hopeful that maybe, you know, he's, he's, certainly on a journey of some kind and 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 who knows where where it could end i, I agree that more recently and not that this means anything I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in the kind of broader what, what does it say culturally mm. but he does seem to be he drawn yeah, drawn into a lot of culture war stuff and i just in the last few times i've heard him talk 
he just seems more just like an angry old man, you know, like he reminds me of something like, like a more of a fundamentalist preacher as before. He's always strong. And I would say my original yeah. critique is he, he's kind of sweeping. He would talk about, well, the postmoderns believe like, well, which one, which, you know, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I, but I can, I can tolerate that, but I think more recently, and maybe it's because he's kind of, yeah. but part of it too, though, is I think when he was more of a, just a classical liberal, more of a free thinker, he was so blasted by in, in the, at least in, in in America, blasted by the left. Yeah, and when that happens, oftentimes the right is wide yeah. open arms. You know, hey, we're we're up yeah. for a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So he yeah. ends up joining. I arms think that's with, right. Yeah, I I think that's right. I and I think inevitably, you know, unfortunately, because we do live in a social media age that tends to reinforce, you know positions that are far apart from each other um unfortunately i i think that that does happen and uh i you know yeah. I, I guess gordon peterson to some extent you know can get swept up in that as much as anyone as i say um it's not but it's you know i make it sound like the, the book's all about jordan peterson he, he features yeah, but he's yeah. one among a number of people who are sure. kind of i think part of this movement um and it's not just in these sorts of culture and psychology i think you know you look at science i think there's some really interesting intellectual secular thinkers but who are not arriving at hard materialist atheist conclusions about the nature of the universe who, who are coming to some very interesting conclusions about there being a sort of telos or mm. you know for want of a better word logos around the universe and the way it kind of cut it, it seems to go in a direction that where life is almost inevitable in it and that kind of thing or, or or just the way that yeah in mind and materialism in the area of philosophy um there's been a real pushback against that sort of daniel dennett style uh emergent view of consciousness where it's really just an illusion you are simply your brain and the chemical processes going on in it there's been a huge pushback now towards things like panpsychism which is um you know the view that consciousness is ultimately fundamental to reality again these aren't necessarily christians who are, who are pushing this view but it's certainly not a kind of atheist naturalist kind mm. of perspective that seems to be at least in my eyes in the ascendancy now in a lot of academic circles and and there just seems to be more room for the concept of god than there used mm. to be and so i i just find all of those different spheres where you're seeing this this phenomenon happening as a really interesting telltale sign that that atheist materialist story of reality that the new atheists you know banged on about so hard it just it's it's just been found wanting in so many areas and 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 this new possibility that we can take god seriously again is is just emerging in its place this episode is sponsored by faithful counseling gone are the days when you need to feel ashamed to see a therapist like there's something especially wrong with you if you need therapy look we can all use more therapy more counseling and not less and faithful counseling can help Faithful Counseling offers online professional mental health therapy from a biblical perspective. And with Faithful Counseling, you can schedule weekly video or even phone sessions if you don't want to be seen on camera. One of the things I love most about Faithful Counseling is that they allow you to change counselors free of charge. Because, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, while we all could use good therapy, not every therapist is a good fit for us. So Faithful Counseling, they want to make sure you find a good fit. And on top of that, Faithful Counseling is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And even on top of that, financial aid is available. So continue growing into the best version of yourself. Visit faithfulcounseling.com forward slash T-I-T-R 
and get the professional faith-based counseling that you deserve. They're even offering a special uh, offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com forward slash T-I-T-R. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for sponsoring this episode. Does the Bible support same-sex marriage? That's a question that many people are wrestling with today. And there's, you know, people who hold passionately to different answers to this question. Now, most dialogues about same-sex marriage, they end with divisiveness and confusion instead of clarity and a better understanding of the other person's position and even a better understanding of your own position. This is why I wrote a book titled, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian Perspective, which comes out uh, in August uh, this summer. So what I do in this book is I first talk about how Christians should even go about having you know, a profitable conversation about contentious issues. I really want us to cultivate a better posture in how we even go about defending our points of view or trying to refute others. I then lay out a biblical theological case for the historically Christian view of marriage. And then for the rest of the book, I take what I see as the top 21 arguments for same-sex marriage, and I respond to each one in a way that's both thoughtful and thorough. Some of these arguments are, you know, since some people are born gay, then God must allow for same-sex marriage. Or, you know, the word homosexual was only recently added to the Bible. Or the traditional view of marriage is harmful to gay and lesbian people. And and many other arguments that I wrestle with in this book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? So if you're looking for a theologically precise and nuanced approach to these arguments, one that doesn't, you know, straw man the other view to make it look bad, then I would encourage you to please check out my book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? You can order it now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It seems like one of the common denominators of everything you're talking about is uh, unlike maybe other awakenings like the Great Awakening or other others that were more populist kind of driven. Like this one seems to be much more on, on the intellectual side. People that are having this kind of spiritual awakening are doing so for deep intellectual reasons. They're thoughtful people. They're asking really hard questions and they're not satisfied with maybe how atheists have gone about some of these really tough questions. Is is that, would that be a common denominator? I, I appreciate that you said, you know, the few that we've talked about, you know, they're on different planes and everything. We can't lump them all together, but they're all very thoughtful intellectual yeah. type people. Um, what do we I, make I of that? What does right. that say? What does that say? Well, well, I, I think to some extent, yes, it, it is, uh, you know, the, these are sort of public intellectuals that, that are primarily behind this movement. And to that extent, they, they probably attract primarily people who are of a similar disposition. So the question is, is this just sort of something going on at one level up here, but it's not really reaching the vast majority of people elsewhere? I don't know. I think, I think actually, you do see a lot of people turning out for these things. You, you've got a lot of people listening to their podcasts and watching mm-hmm. their videos. It's, it, you know, that's that's what the internet's done for us. It, it's made it all so accessible. And I think there are there are people bringing it in at a kind of a, an easier to understand level. Uh, and I, I think, as I say, for a lot of these guys, even if they haven't walked through the door of faith themselves, they've, they've definitely been a gateway drug for a lot of people to take Christianity seriously. And I do know of a number of people who who have, you know, gone through and, and walked mm. on to faith. I think at a kind of more kind of general level though, I think there's also just the fact that matched with this kind of, this change in the way people are talking about Christianity and God at that level, there's also just at the everyday level, I think people are just running out of steam with these lots of little stories that we're telling ourselves in our culture. Because what, one of the other big themes of the book is just that, what the new, the, what the failure of the new atheism proved in a way was that you you can't 
take religion out of people. You can you, now, you know, they we've seen a long process of secularization, which the new atheism was kind of the cherry on top of in a way where we've seen the Christian story go out of fashion in the West and, and very much mm -hmm. in the back window. But you, when people stop being religious about God, they just get religious about other things. And for me, mm. that's evident in our culture today because people do get really invested in other quasi-religious things. So a lot of the ideologies, you know, of the progressive left, I, I think have a very kind of religious nature to them. You know, they, they have their sacred text and their high priests and mm. you know their their orthodoxies and they have their witch hunts and their heretics and, and everything else so there's a and and they are and these identities and so on that people often assume are are regarded as sacrosanct in many ways that it, it is sort of internalized in a way that, that is quasi-religious but it's not just on the progressive left on you know if you go on the right there's there's you know certain forms of nationalism and um, conspiracy theories and, and all sorts of things that, again, are these sorts of um, ways in which I think people are trying to fill that God-shaped hole with something to make sense of reality. It's it's it, mm -hmm. and, uh, because the atheist materialist story that we're really just a collection of randomly evolved atoms bouncing around in a purposeless, mindless universe, it, That no one's going to really be happy with that story. Yeah. No one's kind of gets a a sense of meaning or transcendence out of that. So there's all these other stories that people are reaching for in the absence of the Christian story. And the, and the problem with them, of course, is that none of them agree with each other and you end up in the culture wars. And the question is, how much longer can people survive on that diet? And so I wonder whether we're kind of seeing sort of at the intellectual level, things getting sort of prepared, but also a kind of just at the pure cultural level, people kind of running out of energy you know, I, I don't know your thoughts on this, Preston, but I, I think that a lot of the reason personally behind the rise we're seeing in anxiety, depression, suicide, especially among younger people, is to do with the fact people are exhausted by mm -hmm. having to basically invent their own story. Mm -hmm. And we are made to live in a story, but we've forgotten the story that we were made to live in. And until we find it again, we, we're not going to be happy. We're not, we, you know, no matter how many other stories we tell ourselves. Everybody needs a meta narrative, right? A, a thing that makes sense of everything. And that, that I think what you're saying, just from my anecdotal observation, that, that I, I would agree that, that an, a pure atheist meta narrative is, is, is going to produce way more anxiety than, and, and make less sense of the world than, than other uh, meta narratives. Um, yeah, the anxiety, depression, all that. I mean, I there's yeah, that's a whole other conversation. I I I think for sure at least part of it is the burden put on the individual to make sense of of their own world, to cultivate and create sometimes an, an identity for themselves. And I, and I also think just the 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 plethora of all the available options can be super stressful. Like if, if yeah. you go to this if you go to the grocery store and you're looking for a box of cereal and there's three kinds. That's not yeah. stressful, you know, but when there's 300, <laughs> just thinking about yeah. that stresses me out, you know, like I, and I'm, you know, people, I don't want people to read between the lines. Like I'm just talking about gender identities, although that might be part of it, but I mean, and not just even sexual identities, but like just lots of different, um, yeah, the, the algorithms on social media, though the way everybody's vying for attention, the way ad companies are, I mean, every, everything's just been exacerbated and, 
And as, as much as we live our lives, especially online, that could be, yeah, I, th- I think it's been shown pretty, pretty clearly. I mean, Gene Twangy has shown it and others, Jonathan Haidt, that, I mean, the, the more time you spend on, on, on a screen, on social media, living in an online world. I mean, that's just, I, it, I think it's been proven. I don't think it's that disputed that that does not yeah. increase your happiness and lower your yeah, anxiety, yeah. you know? And, and we know that we've watched movies like the yeah. Netflix's social dilemma. We, we know yeah, this, yeah. it's not a, the disputed point, but we can't stop, you know? So, yeah. I, 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 I would agree with all of that. And I think, I think, I mean, the, the, the technology and social media, I think that's all accelerated it, but I feel like it's accelerating something that was, was there already, which is, it, it, it has been kind of sown already by the post-Christian kind of post-modern culture that, that we're living in, which is, you know, which, which goes for as far back as, you know, Disney films and everything, you know, which, which were about, um, if you can, ima- you know, if you can dream it, you can do it. It's this kind of, you can invent yourself, you can be yourself, you can, you know, and everything else. And I think, but I think technology and social media has just inflated and accelerated that in a way that makes it far more invasive on people's lives and, and therefore makes it far more intolerable almost, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's why, people are cracking under the strain, I think, of, of that kind of thing. Um, there's a great book actually by by Alan Noble on this, which I don't know if you've come across, You Are Not Your Own, um, and, and other stuff he's written. I, I found really helpful kind of, from his perspective, kind of looking at the way that search for identity um, and just, just how stressful and burdensome it is for people, uh, especially, you know, he teaches a lot of, you know, students um, as a English professor and everything and, and and just it was just fascinating to see his take on that as well hmm. I was gonna I, I thought you're gonna talk about um Carl Truman's book because he, he does oh, yeah. you know, that, that massive kind of look at the roots of a lot of the, this expressive oh, yeah. individualism and other other ideas but yeah I've had Alan on the show um and, and we talked about that I think last year sometime so um yeah I'm glad a lot of people are t- tapping into it do you find then that that the that a pure not agnosticism, but atheism, that that as a, as a meta narrative, as an identity, as a way of thinking that that is really f- like, are the numbers of true atheists is, do you th- find that shrinking and continuing will continue to well, shrink? It's, it's, it's an interesting one because when I, when I kind of put a preview cover of the book title, the surprising rebirth of belief in God on my Twitter, I had a lot of atheists kind of responding to it <laughs> saying, what a ridiculous hypothesis you know just look at the statistics we know that christianity is on decline in the west it's you know and and how can you even put that on your book cover and and as i've explained it's it's actually about looking really at a phenomenon that's i think we're just at the very beginning of potentially i i don't dispute the fact that the the statistics tell us that church going is in decline across the west uh that more and more people are signing none when they write about their religious affiliation, especially true of millennials and Gen Z. But what is interesting is when you dig into those statistics a bit, there's not that many of those who are actually saying, and the type of non I am is an atheist materialist. That the the the, the, the statistics haven't really changed that much on that one. Um, we had a uh, our latest big census every 10, every 10 years here in the UK, we do an, a national census and the statistics came out for that last year. And the big thing for on re- the religious demographics was that for the first time, less than 50% of people ticked the Christian box. Um, and I think it was about 25% of people said that they had no religion. But then when you drill down into it, 
you, you that you had the option of saying well what what does that look like for you and out of i think it was about 22 million people who said they had no religion only about 10,000 had said they were an atheist i mean that's mm. a that's a tiny number who who have actually gone to the trouble of actually telling us what they're kind of so i just think and and again there are other statistics that bear this out that people live in a kind of agnostic slash quite often spiritual but not religious kind of that's the phrase i was going to say things. spiritual but not religious yeah. sounds like the most popular yeah. yeah exactly and and so i i think that typifies a lot more of the people so i don't think dawkins and new atheism made that many converts to scientific materialism um i think they were just part of a, a, a you know what was already a big cultural wave of agnostic post-christian kind of culture where you know, religion was seen as, you know, uh, old fashioned and fusty and, you know, something that your granny does. Um, to that extent, it's interesting to see the way that church membership has declined precipitously in, in the, in the UK, but in the same way that actually other forms of membership have declined, you know, um, the number of people who affiliate with uh, political parties or, or, you know, the, a number of pubs that are closing in you know local villages and things like that there's just there are other changes afoot in the demographics of the west that that sort of mean that people are rejecting kind of institutional membership of things and that sort of thing so so i i, I think it's hard to say atheism is on the rise it's it it feels more like people are just not buying into institutional religion so much but that doesn't mean that that as I say, that 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 more general religious feeling has necessarily completely gone away at the same time. That that's I, I love that you said that because when I hear people say, you know, church going is on an all time low, and and people, are, you know, I, part of me is kind of okay. I'm, this might make some people upset, but I I part of me is kind of like, so what? Like I don't I, I don't. <laughs> there, I've been to a lot of churches where I'm like. Yeah, this place is screwed up. You know, I wouldn't want to go here. Yeah, I, I'm more interested in people having a reconciled relationship with the risen Lord of the universe. And sometimes, some forms of an institu institutionalized church can get in the way of that. I've experienced that. That is not a knock on all churches or even most churches. I'm just saying, like, our goal should not be to cram people into a church service. To me, that's that's not that could be a penultimate goal. Maybe that's a way for them to encounter Jesus, but. Um, just to get them. There's loads of people that are simply going to church who are not in a reconciled relationship with the radical Lord of the universe who commands their existence. You know, like that's, there's, there's a big gap there. So yeah, to me, I'm not as, I'm not as interested in raising the numbers of simply church attendance. I am interested in well, I mentioned unearthing the question, well, why? Why is that? Like, is that some people just assume, see, that's a sign of no interest in Jesus. Like, not necessarily. Like, I know a lot of people who are very interested in Jesus, but wouldn't step foot inside of a, a, a church building for many different wide range of reasons. It's too politicized. Maybe they're, you know, in America, they might vote Democrat and they're scared they're going to be yelled at by some Republican preacher. They, they might be you know, just maybe, maybe they've experienced abuse by a spiritual authority. And so the idea of going under and placing yourself in, in under the authority of some spiritual figure, maybe there's trauma there. There's so many reasons why people, good, legitimate reasons why people might not want to simply spend three hours every Sunday inside of a church building. So, it, so sorry, that was a tangent. <laughs> this is like their spiritual therapy talking to Justin here. I, I, I guess I'm interested in where are we headed 
as a as, as a Christian movement? Are we headed in a positive direction? And how can we not simply get pe- more people back in church, but mm. how can we take advantage of this cultural moment we're in, which is very interesting? There's lots of dust being kicked up. And what can the church, not church buildings or church attend, but the big C church, how can, what can we do to capitalize on this unique spiritual moment that we're encountering? Yeah, I, 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 th- I think it is a real test now for the church as to whether it, if this is a real movement, whether it's ready to to receive it, um, because the problem is so often the church is so busy, you know, navel gazing or having internal disputes or, or whatever that that it cannot often miss these opportunities when they're presented in the culture. And as, as you're fully aware, Preston, we've we've had a real reckoning in the evangelical church over the last several years. There's there's you know lots of scandals, celebrity pastor issues, and, and everything else. That's uh, the, and and you kind of have to ask, you know would anyone who is looking for meaning and purpose and identity and thinks maybe the Christian story holds it out to them, would they want to find it in the church given given our track record uh, at the moment and in the past? I, I suppose I've got, I've always got hope in the end, this is where the faith comes in, that, that God's doing something and that God, the, the church is always being reformed and it's dying and being reborn uh, in so many ways. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said something like, you know, Christianity has died a thousand deaths. Um, it is it's constantly dying and being reborn uh, because it has a God who knew his way out of the grave. And I think that's true in our generation as much as any previous generation. That if if we are going to see the you know Christianity flourish and be reborn in the West, it's not going to look exactly the same as it did before. It's not just going to be that we're fling open the doors and wait for people to come back into the pews. I think. The church is going to have to ask itself um, what's gone wrong. Um, there's a reason why the Catholic Church has had a huge scandal, you know, in terms of child abuse. There's reasons why lots of the institutional churches are dying on their feet because people don't want to come through the doors anymore. Uh, there's reasons why the evangelical church has had a slew of, you know, scandals and falls from grace. And if we don't get our own house in order, the question will be then it may, it may not be those churches that, that are ultimately God's vehicle for going mm-hmm. forward. Um, it might be something new. It, you know, what's interesting to me is that in a way, a lot of the people, these intellectuals who seem quite attracted to Christian faith, they're not usually attracted to the more sort of um, evangelical right. versions of faith. They, they, they tend to, to, to skew towards those more traditional ancient sort of forms that are in a sense less showy, uh, but but kind of are, are, are sort of more grounded in some kind of quite ancient wisdom and tradition and that kind of thing, because that's what they miss. That they want something that isn't just another version of what they can already get in the popular culture. They want something that feels completely different. That you know that I I I talk in at, towards the end of the book about you know um, Tom Holland again, who who says he wants. Christians to keep Christianity weird. If you want me to become a Christian, basically, like give me the, mm. the the old fashioned, like you know, the really ancient version. Don't try and rationalize away all, all the stuff about angels and things like that. You know, he wants to kind of have the mystery and the the otherworldliness of of Christianity in that way. And and I just wonder whether you know there there are lessons across all of that for us about the way we engage people who are sort of tired of the thin diet of 
secular materialism and and they don't just want the church to just feel like another version of that they want something that feels different that's that that kind of taps into that that sort of ancient mm -hmm. line of people who have who have found this story compelling and uh and, and life-changing in that way so yeah so i don't know if that helps at all but because i i don't i'm probably not very good at predicting what the church will look like that that perhaps is able to encompass this movement all i mm -hmm. do know is there's there's a movement there and if the church is willing it could it could be ready to to, to mm -hmm. sort of see something quite quite new happen in its lifetime so i'm hearing you suggest and i know you know you're not the son the prophet or son of a prophet <laughs> um but i guess two major things number one we have to do something about this 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 is really bad reputation that the church has with the church as an institution between scandals and, and celebrity pastors and, and, and narcissism in the church and all this stuff that I think a lot of people are, it's just the, the bubbles kind of pop. People are just tired of it. Uh, how, how women have treated, been treated, um, especially um, the hard thing for me on that is, I mean, it's, it's a no, it's a, it's without question. We need to address that and clean it up. Part of it too is, I don't know. I, I've been wrestling with this with some friends of mine, and I don't know what to do with it, but like, it's also the reporting on it too. For every one mega church that makes the news on a scandal, there's a thousand unknown churches with godly, humble leaders who aren't abusing women or children or whatever, who aren't embezzling money, who aren't, you know, who are, you know, wake up every morning and pray for the people and are visiting people by the bedside, you know, but they don't make the news. So like, no matter what we do to our reputation, even if there's, say there's 20 churches that make the news on a scandal. That's minuscule. Let's just say we got down to there's, okay, at any given time, there's 20 churches doing really bad stuff. That Those 20 will make the news. The hundreds of thousands of others will not. And it's going to get the perception of the church is just filled with scandal. So that's, mm. part of me mm. is on the nature mm. of reporting that yeah. even if we do reverse, even if we do address the issues, which we absolutely must, I'm not sure. I'm I'm a little more pessimistic about actually reversing the reputation, unless we do something about the more global question of how how do we even go on about getting our information of what's kind of going on. That's number one. Number two, I'm hearing you say that. Um, yeah, I, I think we need less fluff and more depth. I mean, of course, that's my hobby horse. I've been on for 25 <laughs> years. You know, I, I think people actually. It's it's funny. Like if you look at like the best selling books in a, in the secular world. There are books by Tom Holland and 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 J Jordan Peterson and 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 you know I just use those as examples because we talked about them. But sometimes they're 500 page, very intellectual books. They're selling millions of copies. Now go to the Christian bestsellers, and it's like adult coloring books. It's you know Christian living stuff that might, might serve a purpose, but it's just it's so vastly different. And I'm like, yeah, are we? I think people in our congregation are actually asking harder, and they're questions and they're capable mm. of deeper, mm. much mm. more meaningful conversations and into uh, in-depth church environments. Now I'm speaking as an American, mm. spent, I've mm. spent years in the UK. Mm. You guys mm. are way mm. better at this than, well, not, not <laughs> than we are. I mean, it, it depends. I, I, I mean, on both those counts, I, I think you're right. I think it is hard sometimes in, in a culture where People love to hear the bad news, and that tends to be what rises to the top. It, it's hard to reverse an image problem in the church when, um, you know, inevitably people always focus on the, the things that do go wrong. Having said all that, I, I do think it has been an issue 
you know, in the evangelical church. I don't think it's just a coincidence that's, that there seemed to be a spate of more stories than than usual. Uh, I think that the chickens were coming home to roost to some extent with a certain kind of church culture and celebrity culture that had become, mm. was increasingly becoming co common, especially in mega church kind of circles, um, a way, a kind of evangelical industrial complex that that was setting things up in ways that were unhealthy. Um, and, and I think the challenge for the church is, is, is it going to basically model itself on, on a kind of growth model, but which produces potentially narcissistic pastors and, uh, people who do things that are wrong in that way, or, or are we less obsessed with growth and more just with being faithful to Jesus? I agree. There are thousands of churches for every one mega church scandal who are doing that um but that I, I i have nevertheless seen a a trend with the growth of social media and everything else where people want to emulate you know certain types of models of church and and ministry that that ultimately have proven sadly on a number of occasions to to not be healthy ways of doing ministry in church because they they result in burned out people you know who are just doing it for the wrong kind of motives and i yeah I, I i think we do have to take a long hard look at ourselves and ask whether, whether we're getting it right in that respect um partly it's about disengaging from those types of culture and, and being willing to to have churches which are in a sense simpler which which don't require us to kind of adopt all the methods of the world to kind of make sure that we're seen and noticed and everything else and, and whether we can have the humility to just get on and do what we're being called to do faithfully um, for Jesus without without necessarily having headlines about it. The one thing that I think does give me hope in a way is that in an increasingly technological culture where we are so often more lonely than we've ever been before because of screens and the fact that communi real community doesn't happen anymore, the, the church can be a counterexample of that. It, it still is a place where we're supposed to turn up on a regular basis and be together in person. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that you just can't beat that when it comes to community. And for me, that alone gives me hope that the church will continue to, to thrive in some form or another because people need community. And it's actually becoming harder and harder to find that in today's technological world. And I think as we see these sort of refugees from what I described as the meaning crisis in our technologically saturated world in which you're sort of everyone's having to compete to create their identity and it's, you know, resulting in in this sort of search for a story that that is people is out there, but people can't see. I just think that the church still has everything it needs if it just went back to basics mm. to to do that, to to be the place where people discover that story and work out how to live it out in community together. And, and my hope is that all of the other stuff that's been going on in the evangelical church and other church traditions that, that hopefully this is a, you know, the, the best way of, I can hope of seeing it is that it, it's kind of like clearing away stuff mm -hmm. that needed to be gotten rid of and that God's mm -hmm. kind of doing something painful as it is that will clear the way for something new mm -hmm. where we can, we can kind of have a fresh start and, and that, that rebirth thing. Um, what was the second thing you were talking about? Is just the, 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 there is a, and maybe it's a post-internet, post-social media age. I didn't say it like this, but there's just so much information out there. So many ideas. So people mm -hmm. are thinking much more about 
things. Oh, and, and the way that the, and, the yeah, the and the Christian bookshelves just just don't really seem to reflect yeah. that kind of depth. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because at one level, we're we've got more at our fingertips than we could ever have dreamed at one time. If you want to read extraordinary, extraordinarily good Christian theology or apologetics or anything else, it's easier than it than it ever was. But we also seem to be settling for <laughs> far, far shallower uh, in in the general culture, far more shallow versions of Christianity very often, um, and and that is a worry to me. I think uh, I kind of you sort of see it on the social media side as well, don't you? You know, we could do anything with the internet, but we end up just scrolling mindlessly through twenty second videos on TikTok. <laughs> so it's like it, it it's I don't know. It's something about the human condition. I think hmm. that. That, that militates in that direction. I think Christians do need to take seriously the, you know, and this is what you and I have both invested a lot of our life in, take seriously the life of the mind and the intellect. And, and, and that's, I think why people like Lewis and Tolkien and so on, that, that we still reference them today as, as giants because they were people who did that. They were Christians who just, put the Christian worldview into their work in, in a way that, you know, unfortunately today doesn't happen so frequently. And my, my hope is that perhaps this rebirth itself could be, could signal something like a rebirth of that, that kind of intellectual tradition as well. I think we've seen parts of it coming back to life. I think the new atheism in a funny way actually sparked the church a, a little, it gave the church a bit of a shock and it forced at least certain parts of the church to put down their guitars and tambourines and and pick up their theology mm. books and philosophy books again because mm. they had something they had to respond to. So I, I've been gladdened by the rise of um, a lot of quite good Christian apologetics um, and 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 so on in response to the new atheism. Um, but I still think there's a long way to go, and the, and the, the the bit where there's a long way to go, I think, is is in the popular culture creating real depth in a in other areas of, of art and music and culture and film and, and everything um, where, but you, we, we can't rely on Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel forever. We need to have our regeneration of that Christian worldview in our day. And um, I feel like something has to change in the culture and maybe that's what we're seeing. We, we, you know, if, if we see, you know, some of the, those big heavyweight intellectuals or whoever, you know, coming through and suddenly seeing that this Christian story makes sense of all those stories. Maybe it'll be some, some amazing rebirth, not just of belief in God, but of culture itself. You know, that wouldn't that be amazing? That would be absolutely amazing and exciting. Uh, well, Justin, thank you so much for the invigorating conversation. The book again is the surprising rebirth of belief in God, why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I would highly, highly encourage people to, um, not just buy and read the book, but please do pre-order it. It's available on pre-order. Something readers don't understand is that it's actually more effective to pre-order a book than to order it after. Like the pre-order sales do something with the algorithm. Somebody explained it to me yeah. once. It does with oh, the algorithms. Great. Amazon buys more books. So if you're planning on reading it, pre-order it now. You'll get it when yeah. it comes out. Um, where can yeah. people find you, Justin? I know you're you're doing a lot of the kind of independent work these days. And uh, where, yeah, where well, the the, the the best way to keep up with what I'm doing is is maybe to sign up to my newsletter at my website justinbriley.com. Um, so I've I've got some new uh, podcasts that I'm working on these days, um, 
there's one called the Reenchanting Podcast, which is which is actually very similar to what we've been talking about. You know, talking to both Christian and non-Christian um, thinkers and intellectuals about how we can reenchant the secular culture with the Christian worldview. Um, so that that's exciting to be on that. I'm I'm obviously doing a lot around this book, um, and you can find out more about that there as well. Um, and I'm I'm currently working on a, a podcast documentary series based on the book as well. So. Um, wow. hoping to launch that in September. Uh, it'll also be called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. So think um, if you enjoyed sort of the, the the style of, say, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, it's it's doing that, but for this this kind of material. Um, so, so yeah, um, uh, but the easiest way to pre-order the book and find out more is just to go to my website. That's justinbriarly.com. Okay. okay, awesome, Justin. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Preston. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.